This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. Kick-Ass News is brought to you by Bear. Bear makes aspirin that helps save lives during a heart attack and protects the heart of a family. From advances in health to innovation in agriculture, Bear is advancing science for a better life. At Bear, this is why we science. And now, enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis. Welcome to Kick-Ass News. Today, I'm happy to welcome author Mitch Album back to the show. You know him from his number one New York Times bestsellers, including Tuesdays with Maury, The Five People You Meet in Heaven, For One More Day, and Have a Little Faith. And now he's written his most personal story to date, an intimate and heartwarming memoir about what it means to be a family, and the young Haitian orphan whose short life would forever change his heart. It's called Finding Chica, A Little Girl, An Earthquake, and the Making of a Family. And today, Mitch returns to the podcast to talk about how he came to run an orphanage in earthquake-ravaged Haiti, how recent political instability in the country has led to some frightening encounters for the kids, and the hardest part about running an orphanage under those conditions. He shares how he became a surrogate father to a young girl with a terminal illness, how he learned what it means to be kid tough, and how Chica taught him some valuable lessons about the important things in life. Coming up with best-selling author Mitch Album in just a moment. Happy to welcome Mitch Album back to the show. Mitch is a best-selling author, screenwriter, playwright, and nationally syndicated columnist, the author of five consecutive number one New York Times bestsellers. His books have collectively sold more than 33 million copies in 42 languages worldwide. Tuesdays with Maury, which spent four straight years atop the New York Times list, is now the best-selling memoir of all time. And four of Mitch Album's books, including Maury, The Five People You Meet in Heaven, For One More Day, and Have a Little Faith, have been made into highly acclaimed TV movies for ABC. Album has founded six charities in and around his hometown of Detroit, and he also operates an orphanage in Port-au-Prince, Haiti. That's where he met the young girl who inspired his latest book, Finding Chica, A Little Girl, An Earthquake, and the Making of a Family. Mitch, welcome back to the podcast. Oh, thank you very much. Nice to be here. Well, Finding Chica was incredibly touching, and it's at times a heartbreaking book about a young Haitian orphan girl who had a terminal brain tumor, and you and your wife, Janine, actually welcomed her into your home, really became a surrogate family to her, and were there for her final moments. How long has it taken for you to feel comfortable writing about her? Well... I think uh, writing about her was actually kind of cathartic, to be honest with you. Uh, mm-hmm. You have a lot of grief, you have a lot of emotions, a lot of love that doesn't have a place to go anymore. So at least as a, someone who writes for a living and also for his art, uh, that was kind of a natural way for me to express the story. And I deliberately didn't want to write a sad story. Uh, and I didn't want to write something where you're afraid to get to the last 20 pages and you don't want to read about a child dying. So I set it up that right from the beginning, you know what happens to her on the very first page, but yet she's come back 
to visit me, as she frequently does when I close my eyes or dreaming or things like that. And she's come back to ask me to tell her her story. And she's sort of sitting by my feet in the office where where we always used to be together every morning. And uh, she's saying, well, you're writing. Why don't you just write my story? Write about me. And she asks a bunch of questions. So in that way, it was sort of like having a year-long conversation with her. Uh, and in some ways, you know, it made me feel good. Some made me feel sad. Some made me laugh out loud. And that's kind of what, like having a child is, right? And you say that she first visited you about eight months after her death. I want to say it was the day of your father's funeral or the day that he passed away. And I was curious because I wasn't sure how to take that. Were you being literal when you said that she was visiting you? Well, I remember that as sort of being the first time that uh, I, I would close my eyes and kind of have these conversations. You know, I think my father had just passed away and a lot of things were on my mind. We were out there to, to bury him. Uh, and I had a dream where she was right there next to me and uh, holding the porch railing. And I turned and called her name out and she looked at me and then uh, and then she was kind of gone. And so uh, that began sort of these conversations where after a while, if I dream about her now, it doesn't it doesn't freak me out in any way. I just kind of take it as part of the you know ongoing conversation you have with people who you love who are never really gone. Now I'm retreading a little bit of our previous conversation about a year ago, because I want to ask about this orphanage that you run in Haiti, where you found Chica. When you first arrived in Haiti after the 2010 earthquake, I think it was, how bad were the conditions at that orphanage? Oh my goodness. It's very hard to describe, uh, to people who haven't been there. Uh, First of all, the kids were barely eating. If they ate, they ate once a day, usually a cup of rice. Uh, when I got there after the earthquake, the place was overrun with people because in Haiti, after natural disasters, people will flock to hospitals or orphanages thinking that that's where they're going to bring food, which is not really true, but you know they were there. And so the place was stuffed with 250 adults and just everybody running around and the kids were, were sleeping in the dirt. Everybody was sleeping outside. Nobody would go inside any buildings because they were afraid they would come back down on them. Everybody was covered in this white dust that was just permanently in the air. There were no showers, no baths, uh, you know, very little water. Everyone on the street was begging and, 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 and taking water sometimes from dirty puddles that were muddy in the street and, uh, and looking for any kind of help whatsoever. If, if they saw someone from the West... I mean, from the uh, you know United States, uh, you know, you were mobbed, and people just saying, "Please, I'm hungry. Please help me." So it, it was devastating. Uh, it was really hell on earth in Haiti a couple of weeks after the earthquake. And prior to that, I'm assuming that you had no prior experience operating an orphanage, right? How does one just up and start running an orphanage and get into something like that? I've thought about that question many times in my life. Uh, no, you're right. I never had any experience operating an orphanage. Um, I had gone down there after the earthquake to help a, a Detroit pastor who had started the place. And uh, at some point, I, I, you know, I kept coming back every month with guys from Detroit who were building things, uh, built the first showers, built the first toilets, built the first uh, school, the first kitchen, the first dining room. And at one point, uh, he admitted to me that he didn't have any money to operate the place, even though we were building it up very nicely. 
he said, I, I just don't have any money. He was in his 80s, and he said, you know, I don't know how I'm going to be able to even feed any of these kids. And in one of those moments that you look back on and say, I don't know what I was thinking, I said to him, well, I could probably operate this. I run charities in Detroit. It's a charity kind of. Uh, how hard could it be? And uh, he basically said, uh, hallelujah, praise Jesus. And we signed the papers, and I've been in charge of it ever since. And uh, I have uh, I've been in charge of it ever since. And I go there every month. Uh, we now have 52 children. I've admitted 46 of those 52. And uh, you learn... You learn on the uh, on the job, that's for sure. <laughs> that's a lot of kids. And in terms of just the day-to-day operations, the logistics, and just keeping things running in a place like that, what is the most difficult part about operating an orphanage in Haiti? Well, there's not one difficult part. Pretty much everything is difficult. You know, imagine a place where the power goes out every single night, so you have to deal with that. And do we have a generator that can keep certain things working. Um, then imagine that, you know, you have to, you have 52 kids. If one of them gets a cold or, um, heaven forbid, you know, a mosquito, uh, travel disease, which there are a lot of like chikungunya or dengue, then all of them end up getting it. And, uh, uh, especially, you know, if it's contagious that way and you have to deal with one kid being sick and quick, let's protect him before the other kids get sick. Uh, then the uh, water truck doesn't show up. Uh, so you don't have any water uh, or there wasn't any fuel at any of the gas stations. So you don't have any petrol to put into the generator, which means you can't have any lights on at night, which means you're pitch black all the time. Uh, the electricity, the, the the computer, if you want to work one, doesn't work. Um, the food delivery didn't come. There are riots in the streets as there are right now. And none of the staff could make it there because uh, they were threatened by people or people were throwing rocks. This is a daily daily basis, uh, you know, let alone, okay, how do we make sure the kids are loved and they're not fighting and they're sharing and all the lessons you would want to teach children. So, you know, take your average family of three and the issues that you have to deal with with that, multiply it by about, you know, 16, 17, then multiply that by about 10 and then multiply that by 100 and then put it in 100 degree heat. And uh, that's pretty much pretty much every day there. Yeah, you've got your hands full. Now, you said a moment ago that there are riots in the streets right now. Uh, what are the people rioting about? Well, Haiti's government has been corrupt for as long as you can remember. And this current regime is not a whole lot better. And the people have just had it. Uh, there, there's such shortages of fuel, shortages of food. Uh, expensive, uh, you know, inflationary costs to basic living. Kids can't go to school unless they pay in advance. Uh, that's public school. And the guy who's in there, the current president, promised to fix all these things and hasn't and was involved in some scandals of his own. And the people have basically said, you know, we're not, we're not leaving the streets until he steps down. Well, he was refusing to step down. And so his Hired people are out in the streets making trouble and other people are out in the streets making trouble. And the result is, of course, the average working person is totally flummoxed and totally stopped. So schools haven't been open for seven weeks now because uh, nobody can get to them because the streets are all blocked off. I was there three weeks ago and our just our van coming from the airport to our mission to our orphanage was attacked by protesters. We didn't do anything. We were just in the street, but we were a car and they threw rocks at us and jumped on our 
the sides of the car and banged on the windows. And thankfully, our director uh, was able to get out and explain we're from an orphanage. You know, we're trying just trying to get to our kids. Please let us go. And eventually they let us go. But they'll shake you down for money, take the things that you have. And they're just trying to create, you know, a, an atmosphere of terror. So, uh, well, so that the government will get to stay in power or that the government will get thrown out of power, depending on who's doing the hiring of the troublemakers. Meanwhile, the average person is totally, uh, totally left behind. And uh, just daily life is, is, is an enormous, enormous struggle. With that kind of political instability and riots in the streets, do you worry about the safety of these kids there? Sure. I worry about our safety of our kids all the time. We have a security guard. The other day he had to fire his gun a couple times because there were people threatening to come over the walls and, and come into our orphanage. Uh, of course, I worry about our kids even as I'm talking to you right now. I read in here that you have a tradition where you actually spend every New Year's with the kids at the orphanage. What is a Haitian New Year's celebration like? Uh, well, we kind of invented our own New Year celebration because none of our kids ever really celebrated New Year's from where they came from. You know, they've come from such impoverished areas. Uh, you know, New Year's is just another night, but I've taught them uh, the melody to Old Lang Syne. I don't know the words, but I've taught them. So they know. They all know if you were to go there right now and start saying da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, they could finish it for you with the da-da-da-da-da-da. And then we get sparklers, which for some reason, those you can get in Haiti. You can't get, you can't get gas and you can't get food, but you can get sparklers. <laughs> and so we found out we could get sparklers. So each kid gets a sparkler. And after we have a dinner of uh, pizza, which we can get from a local place, a special dinner of pizza and juice. And then every kid gets a sparkler and uh, we light the sparklers and they put the sparklers in this bed of dirt and they make a wish for what they want for the new year. And when the last of the sparklers goes out, then they all sing Old Lang Syne and they all jump up and down and dance around and say Happy New Year. And then everybody goes to bed and it's like 845. <laughs> and, that's, uh, and that's New Year's. <laughs> so we don't we don't wait for the ball to drop. You know, I've got two and three year olds and they're not staying up that late. So our New Year's comes around 830 p.m. And by 845, everybody's in bed. Now, this book is about this very special orphan who came into your life. Uh, how did she first arrive at the orphanage? Well, Chica John was born three days before the terrible earthquake of 2010. And on the third day of her life, she was inside a cinder block house, uh, lying on her mother's chest when the earth shook and the roof fell off and the walls collapsed. But uh, she was somehow able to survive. And... Uh, Two years later, sadly, her mother, who survived the earthquake, died giving birth to a baby brother because she was giving birth at home. And, you know, very few Haitian women can afford to go to a hospital and have a baby. And something went wrong and she died right there in the bed. And uh, the baby was born, but Chica was taken away by a godmother and never saw the rest of her family really again. And she was brought to us a few months later. And she was very brash right from the start, very bold. Even during her interview when we were, you know, considering her, she, instead of like what most kids do when they lower their heads and they're kind of very shy, she looked me square in the eye and she made a face like, hey, there's kids outside. I want to go play with them. Can we finish this up? You know, and then she stuck her tongue out at me and I stuck my tongue at her and we laughed. And I said, boy, she's really brave, this one. And she was barely three years old. 
Uh, and as it turns out, she was very brave and she would need to be. And how did you learn that she was ill? I got a call one day in between my visits from uh, Alan, our Haitian director, who said, Mr. Mitch, there's something the matter with Chica's face. I said, what's the matter with her face? He said, it's drooping her eye and her mouth. And I said, well, did you take her to the doctor? He said, yeah. What did the doctor say? He gave her eye drops. I said, Alan, eye drops are not going to fix this. We need to find a neurologist. I didn't know if it was Bell's palsy or something like that, but we found one neurologist. That's not easy to do in Haiti. And then there's only one MRI machine in the country at the time. And you have to go to this place and pay $750 cash. And then you sit there for six, seven hours until they call your name. And she went in, had the MRI done. And when it was done, um, I got a two-sentence report that said uh, there is a mass on the child's brain. And whatever it is, there's no one in Haiti who can help her. And so that set us kind of in motion. Uh, we scrambled for a visa and paperwork and got her to America as quickly as we could, hoping that American medicine would be able to fix what Haitian medicine clearly couldn't. And uh, they did experimental brain surgery on her here in America. Uh, and we thought, well, okay, you know, they'll tell us they got it out and she can go home in X amount of months. And instead, when we got called into the consultation room, they said, well, we have bad news. This is something called DIPG, diffuse intrinsic pontine glioma. And it is always fatal and usually takes a kid within four months. And she'll probably be dead, you know before the summer is over. And we had to make a decision as to what we were going to do. Yeah, the doctor at the time suggested that you let her go back to Haiti so she could just spend what little time she had left with her friends and basically wait to die. You refused to do that. What led you to that decision? Well, the doctor suggested that we take her to Haiti and just let her play for a month or two. and The symptoms would rapidly debilitate her and she wouldn't be able to walk or swallow and she would just die. And uh, he said, you know, let her have a month or two with her friends because you can try things up here, but in the end, they're not going to make any difference. But I knew that she was a fighter. Uh, I had watched her not only when she first got there, but with our kids, she was always bossing them around, telling them where to go. And uh, I said, no, you don't understand this little girl. She's a fighter. And she's going to fight this. And if she fights it, we'll fight it with her. And we made the decision that day to begin a whole different course of action in our lives. And that was the beginning of a, what turned out to be a two-year journey. And she lived two years with this disease, which is almost unheard of. And we traveled around the world trying to find a cure. And along the way, we found something that was even better. Uh, well, maybe not even better. I'd still rather have the cure, but maybe the next best thing. Uh, we found that we had become a family. And how many different treatments did she undergo while you were traveling the world and trying to seek out whatever could help her? Well, she had two six-week rounds of intense radiation. She had two experimental brain surgeries where they put a catheter into her head and slow-fed a uh, drug uh, into it for 12 hours and then you know, followed up for a month at a time. She had another brain surgery beyond that. She had three visits to Germany for immunology, uh, where they take blood out of you every day, and then they treat it with dendritic cells and then put it back into you and hope that it uh, has an effect. Um, 
we had all kinds of experimental medications. She was on a PICC line. She had an internal port. Uh, she had a, a, a feeding tube. I mean, it, it goes on and on. The medical stuff really, after a while, blurs all together. Uh, but the point of it is, and I certainly don't spend a lot of time on the medical stuff in the book, because what's important is that she had this amazing attitude the whole time, and she was so strong, and she made us feel stronger as a result of it. And she was still developing as a child. You know, she was different after one year than she was when she first got there. She was different after a year and a half than she was when she got there. She was growing up. While we were so busy, you know, worrying about what's going to be for her future, she was just living it, you know, and she was a kid growing up. And so uh, it was that growing up and the things that she said and did and and, and learned and, and affected us that ultimately became the, the backbone of this book. And you actually have a term that you use in this book to describe Chica. You say she was kid tough. Do you think sick children have a special kind of resilience that maybe even we adults could learn from? Oh, I don't think that. I know it. Uh, I've spent way too much time in children's hospitals. But the one thing I can tell you is that you will see kids go flying down the hall with their IV tube uh, because they don't want to be late for the arts and crafts room or they want to play the Xbox or they want to paint T-shirts or whatever it is. And, and, and you see that the, in the hospital room behind them, they leave behind a mother and father who are weeping into their hands and the kid just wants to play. Uh, and, and, and because of that, you know, there is a toughness to them that we just don't realize. And maybe it's because they haven't lived long enough to really understand what a life-threatening illness means or to understand what they're losing. Um, they just kind of adapt. Kids adapt. And that's what Chica did. You know, when she, they, they, had, they shaved her head one time, a, a, not her head, but a portion of it, which is even worse. And uh, we forgot to tell her, you know, and they did it during the operation. And then we were so sleepy in the hospital room and she said she had to go to the bathroom. And my wife walked her into the bathroom forgetting that there were mirrors in the bathroom. And Chica yelled, hey, what happened to my hair? <laughs> yeah, I remember hearing that thinking, oh, God, we didn't have a response prepared for this. But she thought it was funny. She was rubbing and said, it feels funny. And then we got her a ski cap and she loved the ski cap. And then later we got her headbands and she loved the headbands. And, you know, that's what kids do. They just adapt. They're in, in Mott's Hospital in, in Michigan. They have something called fairy doors. And these are doors that they put in along the baseboards of different walls in Haiti, in, uh, in, in the hospital. And um, people will leave money uh, behind these doors and kids will open up and there'll be a couple coins or something. And Chica, you know, would come out of, she was in for a blood infection one time, in for another surgery another time. And all she wanted to do was find these fairy doors. And I'd have to take the whole apparatus, you know, the IVs and the, everything that was around her head and we'd go rolling down the hallway and she'd say, you know, where's the fairy door? Where's the fairy door? I just want to find a fairy. And, you know, she didn't say, Oh, I'm so in such pain or, Oh, there's so much apparatus here. She just wanted to find the fairy door. And to me, that was kind of a metaphor for, you know, the way that kids can just make magic out of anything. Even when she couldn't walk anymore, you know, she would stumble. She would try to stand up. She'd fall down. She'd try to stand up. She'd fall down. And I saw her once do this and, she was grabbing for a doll off the shelf and then she fell backwards on her rear end and then she grabbed it and she fell backwards. So she finally just took the doll and crawled and she crawled across the room 
and set up shop under a table. And that's where she decided to play so that she wouldn't have to stand up. And I, I think there's a certain acceptance and toughness and resiliency that kids have that adults only wish they had. And in some ways, it inspires you. How did this experience for you realign your priorities in life? Oh, in every way. I mean, you know, we didn't have Chica come to us until we were in our late 50s. And, you know, we'd been married 20 plus years. We've been together 30 years and living together, you know, just the two of us. And suddenly we were three. You know, suddenly there was a little girl sleeping at the foot of our bed and we were getting up in the middle of the night when she had to go potty and waking up early because she wanted breakfast and, and, you know, dealing with all the stuff that a new parent has to deal with with a child. But then, of course, having this ticking clock hanging over her as well. And uh, all your priorities just fall by the wayside. You think your life is so full. You think you have every minute accounted for and, you know, you have all these appointments you have to get to and, and you just drop them. You just say, okay, well, this is more important. And it's amazing how much room you can make in your in in your life uh, if you're willing to push stuff aside. And we didn't really look of it as a choice. We had to. I mean, we just moved to Germany for two or three weeks at a time and just had to leave everything behind, you know, because that's how it worked. Now we come back, try to pick up the pieces, then go back to Germany again a month later and do it all over again. Um, but, you know, when it's for somebody that you love and for a child, you don't look at it as sacrifice. You really look at the things that are interfering with it as sacrifice. You're like, oh, I'm sorry, Chica, I have to go to work, but I'll be right back. Uh, and that's not the way you looked at work beforehand, but it is once you really are blessed with a loving child who you can love back. You also say that you and your wife actually argued more as Chica's condition got worse, which is totally understandable. I mean, that's a huge strain on a marriage. I can think of many couples who end up getting divorced after the loss of a child. How did the two of you keep it together through all that? Well, I think us we were old enough to know what you just said uh, as well, that many couples get divorced after a child is lost, and we didn't want to be that couple. And, you know, when couples fight when their children are sick, a lot of the times, they're really not fighting against each other. They're fighting the frustration of not being able to beat the real opponent, which is the disease. And you feel helpless that you can't beat the disease. And so you take it out on the person who's closest to you. And so you find yourself arguing over a TV program. Why is she watching this? Well, she likes watching this, you know. Well, it's not good for her. She shouldn't watch it. Well, let her watch it. And then what you're really saying is, well, she's sick and she might die, so let her watch it. And, well, I don't want to hear that she's sick and she might die, so shut it off, you know. And your arguments become not really about what they're about, you know. And they can escalate really fast. And it's mostly just frustration in the form of turning on the person you love the most. And so Janine and I knew that that's what was happening. And after someone took a breath, one of us would say, all right, I'm sorry, you know, and the other one would say, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry too. And, you know, as long as you diffuse those situations before they get too big, I think you can endure them. And, you know, for us, Chica wasn't the only thing holding us together, uh, but she was something that we came together over. And now that she's gone, you know, her memory is what we come together over. And, Boy, if I had a nickel for every time in the day that my wife or I say to one another, remember when Chica used to say this? Remember she used to or look at that shirt or remember this picture? 
And, you know, we've just learned to try to make that a positive and not a negative. And what do you think about most when you think about Chica today? I think about the way she communicated, uh, first of all, because she was so brash and funny. She would sing a doe, a deer, a email, deer. And then we would say, no, it's not email, Chica. It's female. She'd say, what? It's female, not email. No, it's my mouth and I can say what I want, you know, and then you'd have to, okay, I guess you win, you know. Or the time she asked, you know, when was she going to fall in love? And she said, I want to fall in love because you guys are in love and I want to be in love. You know, we would say, well, who are you going to fall in love with? I don't know. Somebody. Well, a boy. Yeah. Well, you want a boy like Mr. Mitch? Mm, Kind of. Well, what kind of boy do you want? I want a boy I never met before. Why? Because that's how you did it. You met Miss Janine, you never met her before, and now you love her, and I want that somebody to love me like that. And you realize, you know, not only was she funny and intelligent and uh, unique, but she was also saying that she wanted what we had, you know. She wanted a a happy life, uh, and she perceived that we had one. So it was, it really made you melt, you know. So I miss those kinds of conversations all the time. I miss the way she felt in my arms. I miss her hair up against my cheek, you know, and being able to kiss her. And, uh, you know, I miss her telling me what time it was to go to bed. And I miss singing lullabies to her and hearing her sing things back. I miss singing with her. And then she, she would put her hand over my mouth so that I would shut up so she could sing by herself. That was her very common move. Um, I miss the way she picked her clothes out in the morning and kept changing her socks over and over again. And, um, there's pretty much, there's pretty much no part of her that I don't miss. Um, and in any given moment of the day, I could tell you what I was thinking about right then and there. Gosh, she sounds like a very, very sweet child. Uh, there's a scene toward the end of the book where her numbers drop and the nurse thought that she was close to passing away but you sensed that she was still fighting and struggling and you began pounding on her back, which I guess helps in some way and said, come on, baby fight. That moment to me read weirdly similar to the moment in Tuesdays with Maury, when you were whacking Maury on the back, trying to break up the congestion in his lungs. Did you ever get any sense of deja vu in that moment or did it occur to you later? Well, when you mention it, yeah, you know, you're right. Uh, I did have to do that with Maury, but it wasn't, with Maury, it was just to sort of clear his breathing. Um, with Chica, on that particular day, yeah, they thought that she was gone. And we were leaning in, holding her, and we heard like a kind of rumbling in her chest. And I said, she sounds like she's struggling. And they said, no, those are just the sounds that children make at the end. And I said, no. Again, I said, no, she's fighting. She's fighting. She fights. We fight. And I did exactly what you said. I started pounding her on the back and we ran this suction thing through her nose and throat, trying to clear, you know, whatever was blocking her from being able to breathe. And within five minutes, all her numbers had returned to the safe zone and the hospice people's mouths dropped and they looked at us and they said, we've never seen that happen with a child before. And I wanted to say, well, you've never seen a child like this one. And she lived another day. uh, And that was a wonderful day because, you know, having endured that we told everyone who she 
you know, who cared about her to come and see her. And she had, Chica had so many friends that she called friends who were, you know, 40, 50, 60 years old, you know, but she called them her friends because, you know, there really weren't any kids around. And all those people, a whole parade of people came to see her and, and to say their goodbyes to her. And the next day, quietly and much more uh, peacefully, she left us. Well, before we go, in the book, you list seven lessons that Chica taught you. What do you suppose was the most important one? Probably the last one, uh, which I call What We Carry, because I used to have to carry Chica in my arms, you know, for the last four months or so of her life because she couldn't walk anywhere. And I had to carry her to the bathroom or the bedroom or wherever we were going, up steps, down steps. Uh, I was her transportation, and we were sitting at the kitchen table one time, and we were coloring, and she looked at me, and I, po- I looked at my watch, and I popped up, and I said, Chica, I got to go. I'm late for work. And she said, no, no, stay. And I said, no, Chica, this is my job. And she said, no, it isn't. Your job is carrying me. And, you know, I was floored by that, and uh, I realized she was absolutely right. My job was carrying her, not just carrying her from place to place, but carrying her, caring for her. And all of our jobs is to carry our children. And and it's also our jobs, if we're blessed to be able to do it, to carry the other children of the world who may not be our own, who may not look like us or talk like us or sound like us or come from us or even live in the same country. But they're needy and they're poor and they need love. And my job is to carry the 52 orphans at our, at our orphanage, Chica's brothers and sisters. And it's a great job. It's a wonderful weight to bear. And uh, I wouldn't ask for any other type of work. That was one of many things that Chica taught me. Well, once more, the book is called Finding Chica, A Little Girl, An Earthquake, and the Making of a Family. Mitch Album, you're a good man. Thanks so much for talking with me. Well, thanks. It was, it was a pleasure to talk with you. And thanks for spreading the word about this book, and I do want to add that all of the profits from this book go to the kids at the orphanage, nothing to me. So uh, if people do want to help us out, that's one way that they can help out. Thanks again to Mitch Album for coming on the podcast. Again, you can order Finding Chica, A Little Girl, An Earthquake, and The Making of a Family on Amazon, Audible, or wherever books are sold. And keep up with Mitch at MitchAlbum.com or on Twitter at at MitchAlbum. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and rate and review us while you're there. Five-star ratings and detailed reviews are one of the best ways for new listeners to discover the show. You can also follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at at KickAssNewsPod and recommend us to your friends on your social media. For more fun stuff, visit kickassnews.com, and I welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions at comments at kickassnews.com. For now, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kickass News.